The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, when you start up a podcast called The History of Literature, you quickly learn that there are some subjects that call for the assistance of scholars, some that call for experienced librarians, and some that call for the lead curator of the British Library's printed heritage collections. And in the case of our topic today, Shakespeare's first folio, you might want all three, or someone who can wear all three of those hats. And we are lucky enough to have just such a person, Adrian Edwards, who joins us for a discussion of a new facsimile edition of the first folio, which turns 400 this year. Adrian Edwards and some poetry of Emily Dickinson today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Well, when Marcel needed more tea for his Madeleine, he rang for Francoise. When Commissioner Gordon runs into trouble, he sends up the bat signal. And when the History of Literature podcast needs to know about a facsimile edition of Shakespeare's first folio, it gets on the line with the lead curator of the British Library's printed heritage collection and with Oxford professor and eminent Shakespearean scholar Emma Smith, who was here earlier this year. Sometimes you need to get the right person for the task at hand. We are very lucky to have people so willing to join us on the podcast. I think there's probably a feeling out there that Jack Wilson needs a lot of help, right? Somewhere there's a room of distinguished literati. Not a, not a room, it's up there in the clouds. It's more like Mount Olympus, where these... Literary gods are hanging out, making bets and doing whatever they do up there. And they look down. Oh, no, they think this guy, this guy, Jack, is bungling everything. We'd better send our best to help him out. Well, thank you very much, gods. When it comes, to, when it comes time to write the epic poem of this, I hope I am treated with some sympathy. I'm doing my best. Before we get to the main event today, let's hear from Emily Dickinson. We're, we're speaking of gods. We're working on, we're working our way through her poetry from one to 1,700, 1,800 poems or something like that. But we're not doing that many. We're not doing the full set. Oh, no. We're only doing the best. The creme de la creme. Or the creme de la M. Illy. As the case may be. And with that, I write a note to myself. Fire the interns. Okay, we are looking at the best Dickinson poems selected by Hen Helen Vendler, the esteemed critic. Today we're up to number 243. 16 lines in three stanzas. We have four lines plus four lines plus eight. And what do you think we'll have? Another corpse? Or more bees? Or the Bible again? Well, <laughs> two out of three ain't bad. This is an odd poem. Odd even... For Emily, she once sent off just the third stanza of it, the final eight lines, to her editor. And that stanza is kind of a complete poem. The first two stanzas, which I will also read, I'll include those for you, although I'm tempted to just do the final eight. Because the first two stanzas, the first eight lines, are a little diffuse. They're hard to follow. Her mind is flying all over the place. And then the last stanza really gets down to business. But let me tell you a Halloween story from this year. My kids and it will all combine. This is about Emily Dickinson and her poem, too. My kids have aged out of trick-or-treating, 
Sniff, sniff. So we put up our our one Halloween decoration, a giant skull that my boys talked my wife into buying one year when they were little, and which we hang on our door. It's not much, but at least it's not nothing. And my younger son, who is older now, teenager, actually had a piano lesson this year on Halloween, right in the middle of crunch time, crunch candy time. So I was going to miss the trick-or-treating altogether. I love going to his piano lessons. I'm so amazed by him and his teacher that I just sit in a chair in the corner and watch the whole thing. It's the best part of my week. My wife is not as into it as I am, those piano lessons, so I always go. It's a task I happily take up. But she's even less interested in young kids wearing costumes and appearing at the door than she is in piano lessons, so we traded duties. I was alone in the house with a big bowl of candy waiting for those little goblins to turn up and ring the bell. We don't get too many on our street, but we did get a knock around twilight, and it was this adorable little girl. She's probably one or one and a half years old in her mother's arms, being carried from door to door, wearing her pumpkin costume. She was terribly shy. Her mom said, can you say trick or treat? And she just stared at me, standing in the door, and then she said, no. Happy Halloween, I cried, shoveling candy into her little bucket. She had a pail like a beach pail. Her parents are making do. They haven't yet gotten the Halloween special of a of an actual Halloween pumpkin or something. And when she's older, she'll probably have that. And then when she gets a little older than that, she'll probably take a pillowcase to fit all the candy from all the neighborhood homes. But for now, she was doing well with her beach pail, half full. She probably went to the beach for the first time this summer, too. And this must be her first time out trick-or-treating. She was adorable. But then she buried her head in her mother's neck. She turned away, and her mom said to me, Oh, she's scared of your thing. And she pointed to the giant skull that we have on our door. And I said, Oh, I'm sorry. Didn't want to scare the little one. Look, look, it's gone. And I turned it around. And the mother said, Oh, look, he made it disappear. And the little pumpkin girl stuck her head out of her mother's cocoon, and she looked at the door trusting us all, us grown-ups, to make things right. And she kind of smiled. And the mother said, can you say thank you? Well, no, she couldn't, but she's learning. And then, and then, believe me, I know this is all about Halloween and not literature per se, but I'm almost done, and this is going to connect with Emily Dickinson, I promise. So I stood at the door, wishing them well as they walked down our sidewalk, and I noticed that she had five additional people supporting her, In addition to her mother, she had the dad, presumably, and what looked like all four grandparents. Lucky kid, lucky family. First grandchild, I bet, out there on a beautiful Halloween night, welcoming this little pumpkin, escorting the little pumpkin into the world of benign scares and generous candy givers. Thank you, thank you, they called out from down there on the sidewalk with... The mom set the pumpkin down and let her walk on her own for a few steps. And I waved at them. You're welcome. Happy Halloween. And without thinking, I was about to close the door and I turned the skull back around. This was for the bigger kids to let them know that we're a house that can be approached. 
And I've got a lot of candy to give out and a big heart full of Halloween spirit. And then I looked down at the sidewalk and the little girl, the pumpkin, had for some reason turned around to look at me. Maybe she was going to wave, but instead she was struck dumb and frozen. She saw the giant skull again and she looked terrified. <laughs> I felt horrible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The grandparents were chuckling and the parents were conciliatory. But that look on her face kind of haunted me. And the awareness that I had put that much fear in that little brain. And we have something very similar in our Dickinson poem today. Something primal. Something that makes us shiver. We feel the horror of it as something we have always known and always will know. From age one until the end. It takes no learning. We're born with it. It's innate to us. Okay, on to the poem. The first two stanzas are conventional. That after horror, that twas us that passed the moldering pier, just as the granite crumb let go, our savior by a hair. A second more had dropped too deep for fishermen to plumb. The very profile of the thought puts recollection numb. Okay, what do we have here in the first two stanzas? Something scary, something full of horror. We're in the aftermath of it. It makes our memories numb to recall it. We were on a pier that was so moldering that it's like crumbs of granite. Imagine crumbled granite getting just a just the pier is crumbling away. But there's a savior by a hair. Not clear what she's got going on here. And something It's something very deep and murky, tapping into religion, deep feelings of fear. And Helen Vendler, for once, Helen Vendler, who is so good at explication, even when I don't agree with her, I sort of admire that she takes on everything. And Helen Vendler, in her commentary, kind of throws up her hands at these two stanzas. It's incoherent, she declares. But then she has this great line. This is why I love Helen Vettler. She says, quote, It is always dangerous to indict Dickinson for incoherence because some connection one has not yet perceived may light up coherence where incoherence was thought to be. End quote. <laughs> How great is that? Like, my publisher is waiting for this. I've got to move on to the next poem, but damn it. <laughs> I'd, I'd finish this puzzle if I had a little more time. I'm calling her incoherent, but that might be me. That might be, that might be me, not her. The problem is not with Dickinson. It's with us, isn't it? But someday, maybe we will get it. Okay, but then we get to the third stanza. This could be a standalone poem. And here, Dickinson gets more abstract about horror, but it's easier to follow. It's coherent, all too coherent, like the skull on the door that the bad man has turned around for us to see. A parting shot for us little pumpkins. The possibility to pass without a moment's bell into conjecture's presence... I'll pause there. She's saying, to pass from the land of comfortable to a land of horror, you get a bad diagnosis, let's say, or, or you die, something you've wondered about idly, but suddenly you're there. You've passed into that new state, that new land, that new state of mind, that new recognition. 
You've passed there without delay. There's no pause. You don't get a lot of warning. It just happens. Just like the, the skull flips around unexpectedly. What is that like? She's going to tell us. The possibility to pass without a moment's bell into conjecture's presence is like a face of steel that suddenly looks into ours with a metallic grin, the cordiality of death who drills his welcome in. Oh, dear God. And it ends with a dash, not a period, a dash, because we're just getting started, aren't we? With that welcome, death is welcoming us. It's not an end, it's a welcome, it's a beginning. And it's not a face of flesh or even of bone. That, too, would be too human. It's the face of steel with a metallic grin. And it's cordial, welcoming, grinning at us in the creepiest imaginable way as that damn skeleton I have on my door at Halloween is grinning and my kids scratched words into its black mouth when they were little because they thought that would be scary. And it's kind of cute because it's all misspelled and everything. A seven and a four-year-old's idea of what's scary. I bet the four-year-old quoted what he wanted to say and the seven-year-old scratched it out is my guess. And it says, you're dead. Y-O-U-R. And dead is in all caps. Not enough room to fit the final D. Little absence of planning. So it looks more like an I. Ah, some, <laughs> some poor planning by our would-be fright mongers. But that's Emily Dickinson's view of greeting death. That death will have a face of steel, a metallic grin, and it will drill his welcome in. In what? In us, of course. Into our poor face with no resistance. We're not made of steel. We're not wearing armor. We're open and fleshy and defenseless. And death is unrelenting. Death greets us with a drill. Not a welcome that's tossed out or offered. A welcome that's drilled. A a grin that's drilled in. My goodness. How does Emily Dickinson do it? This isn't something like 25 words. My whole pumpkin story and the skull and my fear about what was in that little girl's mind, Dickinson conveyed my worst nightmare in the equivalent of a sentence. Handful of words. A true genius she was. That was, what number were we on? 243. That was poem 243 by the genius Emily Dickinson. And speaking of genius, we have the daddy of them all on tap today. Shakespeare, the most celebrated writer in the English language. And it really isn't even close. His first folio was a miracle of publishing. It gathered up his plays, some of them never never before published, and which might have been lost forever. And it published them into this enormous book, a weighty and worthy book, a real triumph of print, and the kind of book that you go and visit or you consult, you make it a destination. If you own it, maybe you have it on a a podium, a lectern, so you can stand while you turn the pages. That's the kind of book it is. Or spread it out on a great big wooden table. And now, guess what? You can own this book yourself, a copy of it, affordable. It's a fact, not a copy, it's a facsimile. Adrian Edwards tells us about the project after this. 
hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Adrian Edwards, lead curator of the British Library's Printed Heritage Collections. He's here today to talk about the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's first folio and a new facsimile edition published by Rizzoli in collaboration with the British Library. Adrian Edwards, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much, Jack. I'm really pleased to be invited. So I think you probably have kind of a dream job for a lot of listeners of the podcast, as well as myself. How long have you worked at the British Library? Oh, goodness. I've been here rather a long time. I'm in my 33rd year Mm. here at the British Library. Um, Wow. I've done lots of different jobs, though. Yeah, right. Started off doing uh, Italian collections, Uh whereas now my role is much wider. Right. So... In your role as as lead curator of the Printed Heritage Collections, what exactly do you do? Can you kind of give us a a day in the life of a lead curator? Gosh, yes. So uh, I manage a team of about a dozen specialist curators that uh, build the collections, interpret what we've got, care for the books. Mm. And this is the UK national collection of of rare books, of early British, European and American books. Mm Mm-hmm. On a personal level, I, I tend to work on projects that cut across all the periods and formats. Uh, so I look after collections that are quite mixed. The private library of King George III, for example. Things like digitization projects. I lead on digitization collaboration with Google Books. I look at things like the, run our specialist databases of book bindings and things like that. Mm. Um, collection security is a big part of my job as well. Right. So a lot of times I hear of someone who has a very interesting sounding job, and then it turns out that they're they're mainly on the phone or in meetings or, uh, you know, responding to emails and so on all day, just like any other person. But do you get to actually work with the books? Are you I, I would imagine you get to spend some time going through the, the shelves and uh, handling some of these masterpieces. Yes, I do. I'm very fortunate. I have to make the time happen, though. Yeah. Um, but yes, I do get the time. It's not all management. I do work on exhibitions as well. And that's when I really get close to the collections, when mm. I'm selecting material for display and researching it to write the labels and so forth. Right. So other than the first folio, before we get to that, are there any other memorable projects that stand out for you in your career? 
Oh, gosh. Uh, well, the big exhibitions are always very special. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just closed one I worked on. I was the co-curator of uh, an exhibition looking at 2,000 years of storytelling around Alexander the Great. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that was just completely wonderful. I was working with some wonderful colleagues. And we, you know, I got, I know something about the early Western printed tradition of Alexander storytelling, especially in the 15th and 16th centuries. But, but to work with colleagues who were showing me the per, medieval Persian tradition and traditions that go back even further to Greco-Roman Egypt, that was just wonderful. Mm. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So the British Library, I mean, it, I think for most libraries in the world, probably a, a single copy of a, a first folio by Shakespeare would be the centerpiece of their collection. And for the British Library, they have so many treasures in so many different areas and the Magna Carta and all of these other things. I'm wondering where Shakespeare fits in. I mean, does he does he have a kind of pride of place or is it just one exhibition among many, so to speak? Is he just another guy? <laughs> is <it? laughs> That's a very interesting question. Um, no, he, he is important. He sits there as part of our core offering, mm-hmm. both online, all of our discovering literature resources include lots of Shakespeare, and on site. We, we permanently have cases in our treasures gallery with Shakespeare material. Mm-hmm. But yes, he's sitting there alongside others. You mentioned yeah. uh, the Magna Carta, but there's all these fabulous Qurans. I don't know, the Brontes, the Beatles. You know, yeah. he, he's sitting there alongside those. Right. But yeah, the BL is huge. You're right. The BL is absolutely huge. You know, the, the official estimate, I think, is currently 170 million physical items. Oof. But right. yeah, Shakespeare's always there, not just during anniversaries such as now. Yeah. Um, but no, permanently there are cases showing Shakespeare, people asking about Shakespeare, and we're renewing our digital, digital offering around Shakespeare. Right. So let's turn the question around a little bit. I asked how important Shakespeare is to the British Library. How important is the British Library to Shakespeare? What do you oh. hold and, and what do you do for Shakespeare studies that might help preserve and, and expand his legacy? Um, well, we've got one of the more important collections of Shakespeare material in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there are other institutions around the world that, that have larger collections, but we've got a, a signature on the mortgage deed. We've got the only extensive piece of writing mm-hmm. that academics generally accept to be by Shakespeare himself. We've got nearly 100 early quarto volumes. These are those single play editions from the late 16th and early 17th century. We have five first folios, multiple copies of each of the later 17th century editions, the ones people call the second folio up to the fifth folio, uh, sorry, fourth folio. We have most editions in English and other major European languages of the plays of William Shakespeare during the subsequent four centuries or so. And of course, we're not just printed stuff here. So we've got recordings of performances and oral histories made with actors and directors who are working with Shakespeare all the time. Mm, right. So I think it's, there's a lot of material here. I think you'd be very remiss to be a Shakespeare scholar and not drop by the British Library at some point right. in your research. Right. So we're celebrating the first folio today, but in some ways I would guess the scholars would probably be 
as interested in checking out the quartos because my understanding is those are are really all over the place. They can be almost like first drafts or variants on the plays, and they can be a little bit harder. The first folio kind of kind of solidified our Shakespeare plays, but the quartos give us some really interesting takes on Shakespeare. They do, and academics are constantly revising how they see these quartos as well. Mm. So the first folio has 36 plays in it. 18 of those plays never printed before and arguably may not have survived otherwise. But 18 of them, as you say, they've been published before as quartos, although I would argue one of them wasn't a quarto, it was an octavo, but let's call them quartos. So these single play editions, they started in, I think, 1594 with Titus Andronicus and Henry the Sixth Part Two. They are such a ragbag of different things. Some of them contain a text that is nearly exactly the same in the first folio. Others contain a text that is very different, but completely believable. It totally works. Mm. Others contain a version of the text you think, oh, what on earth is going on there? <laughs> uh, the famous example, of course, is Hamlet, oh, right. uh, where the famous line becomes, to be or not to be, I, there's the point. <laughs> what, what's all this about? And, and you know, the, the, they were, I think so during the 20th century, people called them the bad quarter. Right. And, and suggested that they weren't, they're second rate. They didn't serve a, a, a strong research purpose. But I think that view's changing. What I'm hearing from the academics that are working with our collections today is that they're realizing these, these memorial reconstructions, they're people trying to remember the, the plays, perhaps bit park actors or people that were in the audience. What they're telling us is, is something else about how the plays were actually performed. Right. So they may be how the play has. Yes, yes, sometimes it may be mishearing. That's fine. I understand that. But sometimes they might actually be telling us that during the course of performance, whether in a theatre in London or on the road throughout the country, they're changing. The plays are being changed. They're being edited. They're getting longer. They're getting shorter. People are changing the lines. And some of that is possibly being captured in these quarters. And that's one of the reasons why even the bad quarters are fabulous and really important to study. Right. So another text, I think you alluded to it earlier when you talked about the handwriting. My understanding is the British Library has the book of Sir Thomas More, which... Oh, yes. Yeah. What is that exactly, and why is that manuscript so special? Well, it's, it's a manuscript, like you say. It's a, an unpublished play by someone called Anthony Munday, um, written in the late 1590s, perhaps up to 1601. It was never performed, and at a certain point, it seems to have been given to three or four other playwrights to revise, we think, in order to help it pass the checks made by government censors. And one of these other playwrights that got his hands on the book of Sir Thomas More to revise it, we think was Shakespeare. Mm. There are three pages where the writing, there's a, a famous scene where Sir Thomas More tries to quell the unrest of a crowd in the streets of London who want to see immigrants removed from the city. And, and Thomas More makes the case for these, these are ordinary people. If you throw them out of the country, they'll just be lost people somewhere else. And that speech feels to most scholars 
like Shakespeare? And if so, we've got three pages with Shakespeare's handwriting on. There's nothing else like that anywhere else. Mm. Unfortunately, the play still doesn't seem to have ever been performed in, in the early 17th century, nor was it ever printed. And it was lost until refound by researchers mm. um, in more recent decades. Mm -hmm. What I love about that is the image of Shakespeare. It seems to, to be so consistent. It's so easy today to think of him as we would think he would be treated in our time as sort of a, a genius who was working alone in a room and who would dash off his, his plays and deliver them to a director to, to be the next Broadway or, or London hit or something. But instead, he was very collaborative and he was in the mix. And, and it was probably a play that he and his company were trying to get off the ground and, and he jumped in to help out. And he's working almost like a, a collaborator you can imagine a week before or opening night or something, trying to <laughs> trying to help out. He was a collaborator. Right. We, we know a lot of his later plays were written in collaboration with other writers. And, and he was part, as you say, he was part of an acting troupe, The King's Men, acted on stage. Yeah, he was part of a company, part of a group. He, he wasn't working alone. Right. Do you feel any kind of emotion or thrill seeing the words written in what is believed to be his handwriting, a, a connection throughout the, the centuries? Oh, yes, absolutely. But then I have to say, I am, I find myself being emotional when I look at quite a lot of the, the objects in the British Library. Yeah. And even, you know, talking about a first folio, when, when, I, when I take a first folio off the shelf and I show it to, to visitors and I turn the pages, I always get emotional about that, I have to say. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, 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 real, a real power to physical objects. They have a, a, an aura. It, even if you have a job like mine where you work with lots of important early books, they still remain special throughout your, throughout your working life. You, you never lose that. Mm-hmm. I went to see a, a copy of the first folio here in Washington, D.C., and and even though I did feel a little bit, you know, I was aware that this wasn't something Shakespeare himself could have ever seen or owned. It, it came out posthumously, but it did make me feel that kind of accumulation of of readers and the publishers and just the importance that it was given and just such a a grand project that it was, it, it did make me feel that way. So let's get into the first folio, but let's take a, mm. a quick break and then come back and I'll ask you more questions about this 400-year-old book. Okay, we are back. Adrian Edwards, how did the first folio come to be created? Well, that's actually quite an interesting question that various researchers are exploring at the moment. There are several groups of people involved in the production of the first folio. The people who directed the project, you might say, are John Hemmings and Henry Condell. Mm -hmm. These were the last two remaining let's say, senior members of the King's Company, Shakespeare's acting troupe. Mm. Everyone else had passed away, including Shakespeare. And they may well have realized that they were the last who had actually performed these plays at the time that Shakespeare was writing them. Right. Then there's the printers. 
William Jaggard and his son Isaac Jaggard, who were important printers in the City of London. They had commissions to print government publications as well. They had been involved in printing Shakespeare materials before, and they had the presses in their work workshops. They probably had some of the finance. They certainly had some of the skills. And then there's this publishing syndicate. These are mentioned in the volume itself at the end, which includes the Jaggards, the, the printers, but then Edward Blunt, uh, John Smedic, and William Aspley. And these are people who perhaps own some of the rights to publish some of the plays and probably put some of the money forward. It would have been such an expensive venture to print the first folio. Mm. The paper alone would have cost the earth. Yeah, that probably would have been the thing, is, is, is how do you secure enough paper to start printing the first wow, folio without right. bankrupting yourself? Yeah. Um, it's a big book. Yeah. Each copy is unique. But let's say, roughly speaking, 909, 10, 11, 11 pages, something like that, usually. Yeah. Uh, it's a big book, a big, heavy, heavy book, and it's large size. So it's a lot of very expensive paper. Um, quite why they decided to print the first folio is, is an interesting question. Obviously, Shakespeare had died maybe you know, seven years before the, the publication. So maybe they started thinking about this a few years before that. The scholar Chris Lautaris at Birmingham University has recently suggested that it may have been prompted by the death of Burbage, who's one of the other actors. Mm. And maybe that, that has got people thinking, oh my gosh, it's time to do something. There's also a question of maybe had Shakespeare been thinking about producing a collected authoritative version of his plays himself? He would have seen his near contemporary. Ben Johnson bring out a folio edition of his, Johnson's own a collection of poems and plays. So maybe Shakespeare had been thinking about this. But to be honest, the evidence isn't there. And we, we rely on people looking at what scant evidence there is and seeing what likely scenarios they can weave from those. Right. We can speculate based on some context as you say, that that a lot of these were plays that hadn't been published at all, and maybe there was a, a, a feeling that they were going to be lost or that they deserved to be remembered better or, or even produced or, you know, they deserved to be recorded somehow. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. And we also have, uh, like you're saying, some of these variants that were could sometimes be quite different from the original. There, there maybe was a feeling of, well, let's let's preserve sort of as close as we can remember or as close as we can come from the sources what exactly the words were, because otherwise this could just get diluted over time and we'll lose some of Shakespeare's language. That's right. And, and Hemings and Condell, the two friends of Shakespeare, they, they say in their, their preface to the first folio that these other versions, these quarto versions, are maimed and deformed versions. So mm, I, think, right. I think that definitely <laughs> has to be part of the equation here, that they are thinking that they will offer to the great public, a, a better version than currently exists. Yeah. Uh, but where they got these from, who knows? I mean, so in some cases, we, we can be certain they've taken a, an earlier quarter edition and they've just edited it, or somebody has edited it. Let's assume it's Hemmings and Condor. In other cases, 
they must have been using prompts copies or maybe Shakespeare's own fair copies, who knows, at that point in time survived, but shortly after ceased to exist. So maybe, who knows, they were destroyed during the process of creating the first folio. Yeah, we're obviously working very hard to try and create authoritative versions of these plays right. and record them for posterity. And, and to show how, how there's an element of trying to remind people about Shakespeare as well, mm-hmm. that there has been a gap in Shakespeare editions. 1619, various new quarters were published um, by Pazia often with false dates on and so forth, that there was, that there had been a gap. Maybe there was a sense that Shakespeare's, Shakespeare was being forgotten, that his works were being forgotten. So maybe it's about reminding people as well as, yeah, capturing while they can the best versions of what he had actually written. Mm -hmm. Now, is it fair to say, I guess, given that there was another folio of Ben Johnson's plays, that the first folio really, for us, draws its interest, or what compels us toward it is really because it's Shakespeare? Or is there something about the book itself that stands out as being a a milestone in the history of publishing, either because of its size or because of its layout or anything like that, that you would say kind of makes it a momentous book, even if the playwright had been some mediocrity? Uh, yes, I think there is something, and that's around, around the fact that it contains plays. Mm. Uh, even Ben Jonson's folio includes a lot of poetry, epitaphs and so forth. So the idea of only having plays, which were seen as uh, commercial plays at that, which you know, they're seen as being, at the time, perhaps not, not at the same level as poetry. Mm-hmm. The fact that this is only plays, that, that is very much... Right. Something new. Uh, Yeah, you're right. Uh, Johnson is perhaps forging a new path. So his folio comes out in uh, 1616, and he includes a portrait of himself at the beginning and so forth. But this is um, following on in those footsteps, but it does look very different. Hmm. When you compare the Ben Johnson folio and the Shakespeare folio side by side, yes, they are the same sort of size, but they are very different works. Just the the nature of the layout on the pages and uh, and so forth is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, this this is a significant change. And and also presenting plays as something serious that's the key thing I think. Right, because the book with its size and its heft, I mean, it's obviously a book where the plays will be read. It's not the sort of book you would you would buy. 50 copies and hand it out to the actors and say, this is the play, you know, turn to page uh, 632. That's the play we're going to do this season. It's really meant for people who will read and appreciate the plays in the privacy of their library or something. I think that's right. You you, you could hold this in your hands. It's not so big and heavy that you couldn't, but it's unlikely. It's the kind of book you would read on a table, on a lectern. Yeah, it's yes, it's interesting. All that's interesting, isn't it? Really, how would it have been read at the time? That, that's why, in some ways, you could argue it's more of a monument mm-hmm. than a working text. But I, I think actually, it's serving both purposes. It's a reference copy. Maybe you've got your quarter editions. You know, these small single play editions, of course, continue, um, and and people will have them. That they may have been cheap, and lots of them may have been thrown away, but lots of them would have been kept. People would be comparing 
the version in a, in a in a smaller version they might be learning and play from against the versions in this large reference copy. It's, I think it's about hierarchies, isn't it? It's the top of the hierarchy. Right, right. And it's the one that's got the sort of sanctioning of the the two who had actually known Shakespeare and, and kind of the, just the formality of it where it was all collected in one. It did kind of give it a, a sort of a blessing or the, how should we put it, that it, it etched it into a, a bit more permanence than the quarto copies would have done. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's coming back to this idea of it being a monument, something that will ensure we remember Shakespeare for all time. So, it, it I'd argue, it has a role in establishing Shakespeare as the leading playwright in the English language at that time. Mm-hmm. And then every now and again, he sort of like goes out of fashion, doesn't he? Right. Um, perhaps he was going out of fashion by the time of the first folio. Um, right. And then you know, we see the same thing perhaps happening a few centuries later. And then you get David Garrick, the actor, director, impresario in London, who has the Shakespeare jubilee. And you get this revision again of Shakespeare and, and people come to talk about Shakespeare and watch Shakespeare a lot again. So it's, it's one of these points at which Shakespeare rises in the, in the public consciousness. Right. At one of those points, I understand the library at Oxford got rid of their first folio because there were a, a new edition and they thought, well, why not have the, the new and better version? Yeah, and I don't think they were doing anything unusual there. Yeah. The first folio did go out of fashion. And the title page is the one that's got the name of the the volume itself. It it also has the portrait of Shakespeare himself. And those were cut out of very many editions, perhaps the framing and putting up on the wall, because the versions of the plays in the first folio had kind of gone out of fashion. At several points, people preferred revised versions, ones that perhaps reflected the period in which they were being performed. And that's why you've got the situation today where there are lots of first folios around, but they're all slightly different and only 40 to 50 of them are complete. Most of them have lost their original title pages. Mm-hmm. And in fact, of the five that we've got, you know, a couple of those don't have their original title pages with mm-hmm. the portrait on. They're, they're ones that uh, come from another source and a previous collector or a book dealer has, yeah, has joined these things together. One of them even only has a, a pen and ink copy of the title page mm-hmm. in it. And right. that, that's not unusual. You, you look at other places that have first folios, but the, yeah. As the volume itself perhaps went out of fashion, people cut out the portrait. And then they would frame that or do something special with the do portrait. Different with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we are reduced to speculation when it comes to wondering 400 years ago who exactly this was for and, and who what the intention was. But luckily, people 400 years from now, assuming this podcast survives, won't have to speculate. We can just ask you, why bring out a facsimile edition who is the facsimile intended for? Well, facsimile is for anybody, really. It's the idea is that it's been made and priced at uh, a level that means that people who uh, perhaps never dreamed of being able to hold an original first folio mm-hmm. can actually own a good quality facsimile. I mean, the price point in, in the UK is going to be £125. I'm not sure what it's going to be in the United States, but it's hugely cheaper. Mm-hmm. than the kind of high-quality academic facsimile 
that was produced for universities and colleges in the mid-20th century. This is as close as you can get for something so expensive to make as being a popular publication. Right. Um, so, yeah, the help is that, that anybody really could get their hands on one of these, that, that people that, you know, Shakespeare buffs could, would want to, to own one so they can turn the pages and get a real sense of what it's like to handle one of the original, very rare, and very expensive first folios. Yeah. And get a sense of what it's like to, to handle a luxury edition from 1623. Right. It's also, I don't know, but price is such that maybe it might even be affordable as the kind of considered gift for mm-hmm. someone. If you've got a friend that's, that's performed Shakespeare or directed Shakespeare or always been a great lover of Shakespeare, uh, it fits in there. And it's a lovely addition. We've right. got a very early copy here that's been provided. It is, it's partly glued together. It's not, not final production one. And I am so impressed by it. It feels just like the five originals that we've got here at the British Library. I'm really pleased with that. Right. Okay. So what is the reading experience like? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I went to visit this copy of the first folio, like I said, but I traveled there for one thing. It wasn't terribly convenient. And I got to the library and it was in a, a glass case and it was open to a particular page but that maybe wasn't the only page I wanted to read. It was surrounded by security and everything. It's not as if they're letting people leaf through it and and take a look at their favorite lines and their favorite plays or anything like that. So I really do appreciate the idea that a facsimile version would let me have kind of a tactile experience and maybe just even read my way through an entire play at a time. What is it like to have this in your hand? I mean, there's the size and the weight which I can imagine, but there must be also a kind of reading experience that comes out of it. And if I don't know if you could just describe a little bit what it's like to hold it in your hand. Yeah, it's a, it's a heavy book. I must admit, I wouldn't hold it in my hand. I, I, I have it open on the table because I think that's the easiest way. And like the original first folio, like, like many 17th century folios, it does rest open on whatever page you want to open it mm-hmm. as you work your way through it. Um, the plays are uh, easy to read. The type is not the highest quality of type, but the, the, the Jaggards, for some reason, use an older type. But it is entirely readable. There's nothing about it that, that's difficult to read. There, there are long S's. If you're, you, you get used to long S's very quickly, I think. The, the plays are all in two columns. So, you know, you're going to be turning the pages not that often. You've got four long columns on each opening that as you work your way through them. Um, for me, the difference is... is it's having this as opposed to having a, a digital version on a screen. Mm. When you've got a digital, and there are lots of first videos are digitized. Three of ours are digitized and you, you can access them free over the internet. But you don't have a sense of where you are in the whole volume mm-hmm. when you're looking at something on screen. You know, People try different answers to that problem with thumbnails down the left or whatever, but it's not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, having a, a physical facsimile means that you know where you are in the book. You can turn backwards and forwards very easily. You can check things very easily. You know, there, there are some fascinating points about that first folio. It doesn't. There, there's a contents page called the catalogue. It misses out a play. It misses out Troilus and Cressida. It doesn't mention it, although the play itself is in the volume, and that's all to do with the way in which the first folio rights were obtained by the printers. They thought they didn't have Troilus and Cressida, and then they did. But by the time it was confirmed, 
they'd already printed the contents page. But yeah, you, you can, so you can go back and forth and you can have a look at things. You can check the contents page, the list of actors. You can turn from one play to another. You can have multiple markers at multiple places. You can mark where you've got to if you're working through the whole volume leaf by leaf, although, of course, uh, over 900 pages, it's a big read. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a lovely book to sit and read. Right, and anybody who has done a lot of reading probably knows this sensation of you have a, a better memory of something where where you were, and I tend to remember the books I've read uh, that I held in my hand and, and where I was when I read it, and it gives me a better memory of my experience of reading it than it does when I'm looking at it on the computer screen. For some reason... I take in the text, but I don't really record the experience in the same way. Right. I, no, I agree with you entirely. The other point is, is that, that this being a facsimile, it reproduces everything warts and all. Mm. So the original from which this is produced doesn't have any annotations or anything in, but it certainly has blemishes. The original paper has blemishes. More blemishes were made during the course of printing as ink gets in the wrong place, there's pieces of type fall out or whatever. And then further blemishes during the course of that particular copy's life from when it was first bound through its multiple earlier owners, which would have been in, in, in English countryside, uh, right through to when it made its way to the British Museum Library and now to the British Library. Mm. Um, and all of those marks are there. And also because um, printing, these are hand, you know, this is made from, the original is as a handmade object, and printing is a, a hand process, things are not even. And that, you see that much more in a, a published facsimile like this. And this particular facsimile also includes the bleed through. So if the printing has been too heavy on the other side, you can see it coming through. Right. It doesn't stop you being able to read it, but you see it. And it's all those little things on the page, I think, contribute to your reading experience. It's not a flat experience. You're seeing all these other things as you work through the text. Yeah. Um, you know, that's what makes it a real object. So you can project yourself back in time to a, a, an era where this was first coming out and you feel like you're communing with the earliest readers of it and also some of the accumulated readings uh, over time as this particular copy went through its its readership and and had, you know, people uh, who were spilling things on it or or that. I don't know if anything like that is shown. I don't think this one has any spills in it, but yeah. it certainly has other marks in it. And there's a repair even to the title page. Um, right. the, the title page was damaged, um, was repaired. We think at the very beginning of the 20th century, and you can quite clearly see where the repairs being made. That's what early printed books are like. Mm -hmm. They're not like a book that's come straight off the press from a machine in, in, the, in the 21st century. That, that kind of individuality is, is what early books are like. Each one is slightly different. And, and this, this particular facsimile captures one particular copy in time very well. Right. And maybe people who are, who are recipients of this as a gift can feel good about setting their own coffee mug down on it or something and not feel like it's a, a precious item that can never be, uh, you know, soiled or tainted in any way, because that's all part of the, the process. Absolutely. I mean, you look at, at, at one of the other um, copies of uh, the first folio that we have at, here at the British Library was the copy owned by King George III. He had um, an imperfect copy. The, the title page is, is a real hodgepodge of things. Um, it's three pieces of 
there's other things stuck together. But throughout the volume, there are there are doodles, and there are stains that I would say are very likely to be red wine stains. Somebody has spilled their wine on it. Right. Whether that was George III or whether it was whoever owned it before, <laughs> I don't know, but <laughs> probably whoever owned it before, because George III, although he did drink, he didn't drink a lot. Right. Well, I love that because it, if the book were, were more expensive and, and maybe it would be the kind of thing that you'd feel like, well, I have that on my shelf, but I really, I looked at it once or twice. I just sort of own it. But instead, it sounds like it's a book that lends itself to not only to buy it and to take a look at it as a marvel, but actually to read the plays in it and to kind of make it your own and, and use it as a resource for for you yourself to consult as you work your way through Shakespeare's plays. What else has the British Library been doing for the 400th anniversary of the first folio? Is this something that's taken up a lot of your time for the past year or so, getting ready for this and and everything that's going on now? Or have you been working on other projects as well? Oh, I have to say I've been working on lots of other projects. There's a, there's a couple of us that have been doing Shakespeare things. I'd say it probably takes up about a day a week. Mm. Something like that. Yeah, we we do have some other things happening. We'll be checking all our web content about Shakespeare. We've we'll have a we'll be refreshing our display in our treasures gallery. If anyone that's coming to London, do drop by. The treasures galleries are free. And um, we'll be putting the original of this first folio on display there, together with a second, third, and fourth folio, and also a range of quarto editions that show mm. how different they can be. We are going to be touring some of our, our copies of the folio inside the United Kingdom. And we have put up our three digitized copies onto a free website alongside first folios from 21 other libraries in Britain and across the world. That's on a website called First Folios Compared, which is at firstfolios.com where you can you can see on the screen more than one first folio and you can see page by page how they vary from copy to copy. Mm. Well, that is wonderful. And I'll put in a plug for the British Library. And I was reminded of this when I was looking at the some of the reviews online in getting ready for this conversation of how often it seems to be that a family will go and... You know, there may be one Shakespeare fanatic in the family, but everyone else will find something that they appreciate as well. There's there's Monty Python and there's the Beatles and there's the Magna Carta and there's the Gutenberg Bible. And it seems like a family can walk in together and then kind of wander to their own area of interest and, you know, look at the Bronte sisters novels or, or things like that. And it's sort of like as long as everybody is has got some interest in reading or history or literature of some kind, they can find something that will be the memorable part of their visit. Absolutely. That's the idea of the Treasures Gallery, really, to, to try and show a whole range of different types of materials, different formats, be they music or, or maps sound recordings alongside documents, ancient manuscripts, papyri, printed books, they're all there and beautifully displayed in our major treasures gallery. And of course, there's other gallery spaces as well. Um, At the moment, we've we've got an exhibition on about um, animals, but there's a smaller exhibition space, which often has something that's more directed at younger audiences. Yeah, the idea is it's meant to be a family destination, the British Library building in London. And yeah, it's... uh, Apart from the charged exhibitions, it's a free space. You can just come in and have a look at the wonderful things on display. 
Okay, well, the book we're talking about is a facsimile edition of Shakespeare's first folio, Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies, published according to the original copies. Adrian Edwards, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Adrian Edwards for joining me. You might be wondering what such a book would cost. Well, the list price... I believe is $135 here in the States, but I have seen it discounted something like 35% on different uh, websites. I won't name them, but you probably are familiar with them. Hopefully those sales are still in effect. But really, this is a book to buy as a gift. It's a book that the Shakespeare fan in your life will treasure forever. And so it is a bargain at any price. And don't wait too long. Books like this might not stay in print indefinitely. Might be hard to buy it in the future. You might be saying, ah, well, maybe not this year, maybe next. And then you put it off and you put it off. And then when you do want to buy it, finally, when you get around to it, you can't. Or you can't get it easily. You have to buy it from some collector somewhere who wants to charge an arm and a leg. And who can because of the scarcity? Think of the poor saps in 1623 who had a chance to buy the first folio, but who dawdled. Maybe they really wanted one, but they didn't act in time, and now they're looking at a price of $9.9 million, auction fees included. They could have had it for 15 shillings back in the day. That's an increase of $1,463,470,000%. So don't wait any longer. You could bankrupt your family and all your heirs trying to buy it with that kind of markup, and we don't want that. What we do want is to thank you for being here and to invite you back next week when we will have the first of your dream guests. Those are the guests that you, the listening audience, have requested. And we'll have Shakespeare's Tempest next week, too, if you're looking for more from the Bard in our Wednesday before Thanksgiving annual tradition. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.